Good afternoon. It's good to see you all here. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter 8. Uh, as you do, I've got a, a quick spotlight, a team ministry spotlight uh, to make with you. First of all, I want to let you know that um, we do stop once a month to spotlight specific teams, but this week or this month, um, the spotlight, I believe, is one of the most critical team ministries that we have here as a church. Today, I want to talk to you about our kids' ministry. Um, now, first of all, I want to say for, to those of you who like serve in kids' ministry, um, thank you for stepping into the trenches and what you do, not just for my kids, but for the kids of the Solid Rock student or kids ministry, whether that's Sunday morning or Wednesday night or some of you both, um, thank you for investing in those kiddos. Um, what our kids ministry does is so incredibly significant to who we are as a church, where we are going, and really ultimately the kingdom. And so like, I think for some of us, we, we tend to dismiss kids ministry as um, the place where our kids go simply just to learn about Jesus, like a Sunday school setting. Or for others of us, maybe it's like childcare, a place for our kids to go where we don't have to wrestle with them and worry about them while we focus on what God's doing in our lives. But in reality, kids' ministry um, is, is the trenches that, um, that really impact and guide the future of our church and really the kingdom of God. Like, in a very real sense, um, our future elders of Solid Rock Church are potentially in our nursery right now. Um, future community group leaders are in our third grade class. Uh, future staff members maybe are in our fifth through eighth grade class. Like literally the future of Solid Rock Church um, is in our kids ministry and, and bigger than our church, the kingdom of God. And so as we think about what it means to serve in kids ministry, that's what's at stake. Now, I also want to take a moment just to paint a few portraits for you of what it means to be a volunteer in kids ministry, because I think there can be some misconceptions for some of us. So um, we have a volunteer in our kids' ministry who goes by Miss Judy. And if you know Miss Judy, you know Miss Judy is an anomaly. Like, she's like the kid whisperer, and, and like she is the, the pinnacle of what it means to be a kids' ministry volunteer. Now, for some of us, we think kids' ministry, we think Miss Judy, and so then we look at ourselves and say, well, I can't be Miss Judy, so maybe I'm not called to be involved in kids' ministry. So kids' ministry is, is a whole lot more than just what Miss Judy does. For every Miss Judy who teaches and leads a class or an age group, there are helpers uh, in many of those classrooms who are serving, who are grabbing crayons, who are walking kiddos to the bathroom, who are running to make extra copies, who are helping those key teachers succeed in what they do. Some of you may have a passion to serve, like you don't feel like you have a gift for teaching, you don't like the, the, the limelight, um, but you enjoy serving. Um, our kids' ministry needs servants who come in, who serve, uh, who take care of the mundane, ordinary tasks so that our teachers can teach. Maybe you've got an administrative gift and like you're the kind of person who likes to make sure T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Um, our kids' ministry needs volunteers like that who check roll, who keep up with you know, uh, getting kids checked in and making sure that addresses are entered in and we have emergency contact information and all those specific things. And maybe that's your passion, administration and making sure that everything is correct and spelled correctly and in order. Kids' ministry needs 
people like that to get involved and volunteer. Maybe, maybe you don't like any of those things and you just like talking with people. You're a, a people person and you like making people feel welcome. Um, there is a valuable place for you in kids ministry. Being there in that check-in area, greeting new families, uh, letting them know that we're glad they're there, answering questions, walking them to class, getting to know uh, these new families as they come into our church. And so I just want to paint those few portraits for you. Uh, because, you know, if God is stirring your heart in any, any capacity as I'm talking about this, I'm going to encourage you to act on it and reach out and contact our kids pastor, Darren. You can email him, darren at srchurch.tv, or talk with him in person. Um, maybe, maybe you feel a stirring for kids ministry, but you don't know, it, you know how you would fit in. Um, he would love to talk with you about that, help you get connected. Um, because here's the reality. We believe as a church, God has called Solid Rock to be a beacon of hope to the community around us, and the community around us includes a lot of young families with a lot of kids. And unless we're reaching these kids for Christ, we're not going to reach these families. And so as you think about your role here at the church and you think about kids' ministry, what I want to do is just kind of heighten our awareness of kids' ministry and maybe even just heighten the sense of urgency that we get involved and that we serve and rotate in. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's once every two months. Um, but that we take time to invest in that next generation. And so I just want to lay that before you. Um, if God stirs your heart in that way, I hope you will respond um, by reaching out to Darren and just talking with him about how you might get connected. All right, so uh, today is Veterans Day. Um, I echo uh, Jeremy's sentiment. Uh, a lot of gratitude for the few who have sacrificed much on behalf of the many. And so our, our men and women who serve in the military have a lot of respect for and a lot of appreciation for. Thank you uh, for your service. Um, today, it's by no mistake, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare as Christians and what it means to go to battle as Christ's followers. Now, confession, I didn't plan it that way. This sermon series has been planned for a while. It wasn't until Thursday of this week I realized it's Veterans Day, and we're talking about what it means to be a Christ follower engaging in spiritual battles. And today, specifically, we're talking about the gospel in temptation. Now, the last line of the Lord's Prayer is this very simple phrase, lead us not into, but deliver us from evil. And so in Romans chapter 8, we're going to talk about how the gospel impacts our struggle with sin and temptation. Starting in verse 12, Romans chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Now, Paul's sentiment here in Romans 8 in a lot of ways reflects what Jesus said in Luke 9 when he says, anybody who seeks to save their own life will actually lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so what Paul is saying here in a similar way, that those who live for themselves, who live according to the passions and desires of their flesh, their body, what they feel inside, what they want to do, in the end will attain death. But those who are led by the Holy Spirit of God will put to death the deeds of the body and do what? Live. Now, that's kind of a violent phrase, isn't it? Put to death the deeds of the body. We think about what it means to be engaged in warfare. There's a difference between battles 
and war. Wars are not won by winning every battle, right? The battles are the day-in, day-out incursions between two enemies. The war, right, is the, is the main thing happening behind the scenes. And wars aren't won by winning every battle, right? They're won by winning decisive battles. I'll give you some examples. Uh, the Alamo. You guys know we lost that battle, right? We, we did. We lost it, but we said, don't forget that loss. Remember the Alamo. Let that fuel the fire of what we're fighting for that we might win the war. Another example, Pearl Harbor. Now, we didn't win Pearl Harbor, but what it did was ignite an angst among the American people and the American soldiers, and ultimately, we won the war. Revolutionary War is another example. We lost a lot as Americans, a lot of battles in the Revolutionary War. But ultimately, for the sake of liberty and freedom, the, American, the Americans won the war. And so here now in Romans chapter 8, Paul is calling Christians to go to war and to put to death, that violent phrase, put to death the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh so that we might live. There is a um, fairly popular um, Christian rap artist, Tadashi, who has, several years ago, he released a, 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 a rap song um, entitled Make War. You may have seen his YouTube video on this. It's a great, I almost use it as a roll-in to the sermon, and it gets you fired up. Calling Christians to make war on sin. And in, this, um, in his rap song, he's actually taking clips from a John Piper sermon, uh, a sermon entitled Make War on Sin, and he has infused John Piper's preaching into that rap song. It's a, I think it's a, it's a fabulous, powerful expression of what it means to be a Christian, making war on sin. But in that sermon that he pulls those clips from, we find these words from John Piper. John Piper says, There is a mean violent streak to the true Christian life. A mean, violent streak. Now, let's very carefully ask, violence against whom or what? Not other people. Not Muslims, not Hindus, not Buddhists, not atheists, not secularists, not nominal Christians, not wives or husbands or children or honorary bosses. Violence a mean streak in Christianity against our own selves and all in us that would make peace with sin. It is a violence against all lust in ourselves, all enslaving desires for food, caffeine, sugar, chocolate, alcohol, pornography, money, the praise of man, approval of others, power, fame. This is our enemy. This is where we make war. It is a violence against all racism in our souls, all sluggish indifference to injustice in our souls, a violence against indifference to poverty and indifference to abortion in our souls. Christians, make no mistake about it, we are at war. Over and over again, the New Testament makes it clear that you and I exist in a daily spiritual battle for our souls. Ephesians chapter 6 explicitly describes this. The Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 10, listen to these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of 
the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning one another, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That sounds like a military leader talking to his soldiers, doesn't it? Put on your armor. Stand firm. Don't forget who the enemy is. Wage war. Now, going back to Romans 8, what Paul is saying is that if you and I live by the desires of our flesh, our sinful desires, we will die. But if we're led by the Holy Spirit, we will put sin to death and we will live. There's such an important principle in that verse. Listen to me, church. You want to be led by the Holy Spirit? You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I do. Then what Paul says is here's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to lead you to make war against sin. So the flip side of that is if I ever find myself uh, feeling apathetic towards sin, I'm not being led by the Holy Spirit regardless of what my t-shirt says, right? If I ever find myself indifferent to injustice or indifferent to the things that God hates, then, then I'm not being led by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God leads Christ's followers to make war on sin and put it to death. John Piper says there's a mean streak in what it means to be a Christian. Now, as we think about going back to Wars fought here on our soil, the Revolutionary War. If you don't know your American history, um, the basis of that war was liberty um, from the tyranny of the King of England. Um, And so what was happening is England was imposing these really expensive taxes on the American colonies, and they were taking that money and funding their war efforts. And uh, those who lived in the colonies said, we've had enough of taxation without... You see, you know your history. That's right. And so ultimately, the American colonies wanted to be free from tyranny, tyranny that kept taking and taking and promising goods, promising a future, but never delivering and just taking and just taking. You know, in a lot of ways, this is how the Bible describes sin. Do you know that sin makes promises to you? Every sin that tempts you is promising something, promising you pleasure or joy or security or maybe relief from pain. Just taking from you, taking from you, taking from you, but never delivering, right? Never delivering to you what ultimately it promises. There is a, um, a quote from a colonial pastor um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Revolutionary War when they were uh, debating on whether or not to go to war. And this, this guy, this pastor, was actually a loyalist to England. And uh, this quote was actually hijacked in, by Mel Gibson in the movie The Patriot. Um, but this, this colonial pastor who was also a loyal, who was loyal to the king, he said this, which is better, to be ruled by one tyrant 3,000 miles away or by 3,000 tyrants one mile away? You may be familiar with that quote. You see, here's the reality in what the Word of God teaches. Sin is a tyrant. It seeks to rule over you. Whether your sin struggle is 3,000 little sins or one great big sin, sin is a tyrant. It seeks to rule over you. 
Romans chapter 6, listen to this description of sin. This is in verses 11 and 12. You must, as a Christian, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign as a tyrant, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So sin is a tyrant. And what the word of God is calling us to as Christians is to make war on sin. As we continue uh, reading in verses 14 through 17 in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I love how Paul stops for four verses to talk about who we are. Now, part of the uh, revolutionary war you may not even be familiar with is is a small Uh, group of rebels who basically operated underground, and they went by the name Sons of Liberty. Now, if you know the history of the Sons of Liberty, they're very instrumental in actually sparking and igniting the actual war. And they first band together uh, in, in protest to these taxes. Matter of fact, they were so successful that the first tax, the stamp tax, they got it repealed. But then when it came to the the tax on tea, they were unsuccessful, and they were doing all kinds of desperate things. They were the first ones to do the tar and feather thing out in public, to publicly humiliate those who were loyalists uh, to England, and they were unable to repeal this tax on tea, which led to this midnight raid of these ships out in the Boston Harbor, where several of them dressed up uh, like Native Americans and commandeered these ships and dumped the tea out into the Boston Harbor, which we now refer to as the Boston Tea Party, right? That was the Sons of Liberty organizing that effort and carrying it, carrying it out. Now, what's so important about the Sons of Liberty, and I think one of the reasons why they were so successful was this. They not only believed in a cause, they identified with the cause. More than what they stood for was who they were. They didn't just say, we are you know, Americans fighting for liberty. They said, we are sons of liberty. It's who we are. We'll be free or we'll be nothing else. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 8 when he said, listen, church, that's who you are. You are sons of the most high God. You are daughters of the most high God. That's who you are. He's not just saying, hey, go out and put sin to death and become a better version of who you are. He's saying, listen, this is who you are. You're a son and a daughter of the Most High God. Therefore, put to death sin. Think about that. In your struggle against sin, the Word of God is not calling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, bulldoze your way through sin, and become a better version of who you were yesterday, today. That's not what it's saying. The Word of God is saying, no, come come to the table Fight against this. Wage war against sin in your life. Why? Because sin is an enemy of your father, your dad. 
That's who you are. You call him dad, and sin is waging a war against your dad. And so you're either fighting with the enemy or against the enemy of God. You are sons of God. That's who you are. Therefore, put sin to death. You know, Peter talks this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about the war that's being waged against our souls. And Peter starts in the same place. He says in verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So Peter starts by saying, Let me remind you of who you are, Christian. This is who you are. You're a holy nation. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You belong to God. Therefore, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you might be a worshiper of the one true God. And then look at what he says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you. You feel the angst in that? I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which what? Wage war against your soul. There's a mean streak in what it means to be a Christian. This idea of a mean streak actually originated um, first in a book by um, the author Ed Welch, his book entitled Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And here's what Ed Welch says about the mean streak. He says, the only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. So he's speaking to Christians. He's saying when you encounter temptation against sin and you feel like your life is spiraling out of control, you don't know how to fix it, you don't know how to quit sinning in one particular area or another, the only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. He goes on to talk about self-control in the Christian life as the mean streak. That's what he says self-control is. Self-control as a Christian is not pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and white-knuckling your way through sin. If that worked, we wouldn't need this sermon because we've all tried it, haven't we? Everybody in this room who's a Christian has attempted to quit sinning in one particular area or another or 3,000 areas and, and, and done so without success in our own strength. Many of us have prayed, God, take this sin from me. I promise I'll never do it again, only to what? Do it again. That's what it looks like to try to white-knuckle your way through sin. What Ed Welch is talking about, what I believe the Apostle Peter is talking about, what I believe the Apostle Paul is talking about, what I believe John Piper and Tadashi are talking about, is, is this very singular truth. There should be a mean streak within you, Christian. That's self-control. Where you look at sin and you say, enough! Enough having dominion over my life, like getting fired up and angry over sin. That's self-control. The next part of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul begins to wrap up this whole chapter by asking rhetorical questions. He says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If this is all true, then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That sounds like war talk, doesn't it? That sounds like a call to battle. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Listen to this. It's a very powerful verse. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen to me, church. Wars are not won by winning every battle. We've lost, you've lost many battles in your life, spiritually speaking, against temptation. Wars are won by winning decisive battles, very specific battles. And what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8 is the battle for your soul has been won in a very decisive battle. When Jesus took on sin and death at the cross, was buried in a grave, at the moment his body came back to life at the resurrection, the battle was won for your soul. Now the war's not over, but the very decisive determining battle has in fact been won. Many uh, historians look at the Revolutionary War and consider Bunker Hill to be one of the most decisive battles in the Revolutionary War that led to the Americans' victory. Now, what's interesting is the Americans lost Bunker Hill, okay? But something happened at Bunker Hill. The Americans had taken such a strong stand against the British that they lost far less, uh, far less soldiers than the British lost. And so while the British ultimately took Bunker Hill, at the end of the day, they were completely caught off guard by the resolve of the Americans, and which led to a complete change in military tactics. And that complete change in military tactic was a very subtle change, but many historians will say that was the subtle change and shift that led to imminent victory for the Americans. Because see, from, the, from Bunker Hill going forward, the British tactics against the Americans, rather than surrounding the Americans at the point of victory and taking the soldiers in as captives, they left the back, end, the back door open so that the Americans could retreat. Now, Understand, after Bunker Hill, the Americans didn't just start winning. Matter of fact, there was a lot of losses after Bunker Hill, starting in New York, with New York City, with Long Island, with Brooklyn, with the Battle of Whiteface, the Battle of Fort Lincoln, just loss after loss after loss. But what was different, the Americans were allowed to retreat and regroup, retreat and regroup, retreat and regroup. The Americans were pushed south all the way past the Delaware River in the middle of winter which led to a false sense of confidence, which, by the way, is a, is a struggle for Christians today in our battle against sin. And the false sense of confidence was this. It's wintertime. The Delaware is freezing cold with these huge ice chunks drifting down. There's no way for either army to cross over. So in complacency, each side began to kind of settle in to a false sense of security. But because of the battle tactics of the British, the Americans were able to retreat, regroup, and Washington said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to cross the Delaware River in the middle of winter, and we're going to catch them off guard. And that's what they did. They crossed the Delaware, took the British by surprise, and won a very small victory, and the tables began to turn. Of course, it wasn't until Yorktown that Cornwallis surrendered, with the help of the French, by the way, just throwing that out there. But see, most historians will say, you know, that shift actually started at Bunker Hill at a very decisive battle. Think about the cross from the perspective of the disciples on Saturday morning. 
Friday night, the death of Jesus looked like a loss, right? The leader of the movement was dead. The Son of God just got nailed to a cross, and what did they do? They began to retreat. A lot like Bunker Hill, it seemed like a loss. But come Sunday morning at the resurrection, it was a very subtle victory. It wasn't announced with trumpets or social media or news broadcasts or Tweets going out, it was very subtle. You had to be looking for it to catch it, but the resurrection of Jesus was a very decisive battle over sin and death, and that's where the war for your soul was won. That changed everything. And from that point going forward, I wish I could say that nobody lost any more battles, but we, we lose those battles. There's a very real war being waged against you and against me. Temptation is real. Sin is real. Desires of the flesh are real. And what Paul is saying is this, Christ's follower, you have to make war on the sin in your life. You want to be led by the Holy Spirit? Make war on sin in your life. To float through this life apathetic to sin, right, complacent, falsely secure in who you are, is to lose the battle. This is where Paul ends in Romans 8, starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for or to be slaughtered. Nope. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're more than a conqueror. You are more than victorious through Christ. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, sever us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how do we do it? How do we engage in spiritual warfare and putting sin to death? Listen to me. It is a battle of the affections. It is a battle of the affections. The reason I believe that the Americans won the Revolutionary War was not because of their exemplary military tactics or great leadership. Here's why I believe the Americans won. Because the British were fighting for something they wanted but the Americans were fighting for something they loved. And there's a difference. The reason you have not seen victory over a specific sin in your life, listen to me, you're not gonna like what I'm about to say, so put on your steel toe boots, okay? Listen, the reason you have not yet seen victory over that sin is not because Jesus is not victorious. It's because you love the sin too much. We need, we, we need, to, we need to understand that. This is a battle for your affections, Sin makes promises to you. And when you buy into it and you believe it and you love the sin more than you love Christ, the sin is going to win like a tyrant in your life. This is a battle for your affections. It's not enough to want Jesus to be your Savior. It's not enough. It will never overcome sin. You have to love Jesus more than you love your sin. You know what? Sin promises all kinds of things to you, and sometimes 
sin will, will give you a little taste of what it's promising. You know, sin can, can give you pleasure for a moment. It may last like 13 seconds or 13 minutes or 13 days. But the pleasure that you experience in sin will always give way to darkness and shame, guilt, remorse, and a sense of separation from God. That's what it will leave you feeling like. It never ultimately delivers what it promises. And what Jesus is saying, listen to me, church. I want your heart. I want your affections. I want your love. And I always deliver on what I promise. Nothing can separate you from my love for you. The sin you committed this past week does not sever my love from you. The sin that you're going to commit this week will not sever my love from you. Let that stir your affections for me. You want to see the battle with a specific sin come to an end in your life? You have to love Jesus more than you love the sin. That's how it happens. And it is not enough to want it. You've got to love him. The call of the gospel is a call to make war on sin. The call of the gospel is a call to engage in a mean streak, the mean streak of self-control, to say to sin, I don't think so. I'm not giving you any more ground in my life. I'm going to stand victoriously against what you're trying to take from me because Jesus resurrected from the grave. The call of the gospel is a call to lead, to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit into battle against your flesh. When we read the Lord's Prayer, we're not reading poetry or some childish bedtime prayer. This is a battle cry. When Jesus says, Christ followers, pray this way. God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That's a battle cry, Christ follower. They're saying, Jesus, let your victory reign in my life. Lead me away from defeat. Lead me away from my apathy towards sin. Lead me away from my indifference towards injustice. Jesus, bring victory in my life. Lead me away from temptation and deliver me from my enemies. We're going to end today with uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer together. And this is the third week in a row we've done this. We don't normally do this. Um, but I want to recite this together with you, the church, that we might make this our battle cry today. Let's do this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from. Amen. That's the calling of the gospel, church. I want to spend some time praying together. And as I pray, I'll invite our prayer partners to come to the front and the back and our worship team to come up. I want you to know something. The primary tactic of the enemy is to convince you to keep your sin hidden. The Bible calls that in darkness. The gospel beckons you and calls you and invites you to bring your sin out into the light. So right now, if God is stirring in you and, and working in your life about some specific sin, you are being tempted more than likely to keep that to yourself and to keep it a secret and to keep it hidden. I want you to know that is the tactic of the enemy. That is not the prompting of the Holy Spirit of God. 
The Holy Spirit of God leads us to bring our sin out into the light. So today, for you, that might mean grabbing one of our prayer partners and saying, hey, will you pray with me about this? I just need to get this out there. Or maybe you want to grab a brother or sister in Christ who you came to church with, or maybe your spouse. Maybe you want to grab one of our elders and like slip off into one of our prayer and counseling rooms and just get some stuff out there in the light and pray through it. Hey, do that. The enemy hates it. It's how the enemy loses ground. So as our prayer partners come forward, our worship team leads us, we're going to pray together, and then we're going to respond. Um, Father, we thank you for this very powerful reminder today that Jesus has won the victory for our souls. And God, through your word, you are calling us into battle to fight victoriously because Jesus has already won. To stand our ground against temptation to channel our affections towards you and away from sin. Father, right now, I know the enemy is tempting every heart in this room to hide, to cover up. But Lord Jesus, the same way you stepped out of the grave into the light, you're calling us, your, your children, your sons and daughters to walk in the light. God, right now, I pray you would give us the courage and the faith to do so. God, I pray for any person here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. God, you've made us a promise that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And I just pray right now that all across this room, any person here today who doesn't know you would call on the name of Jesus and be saved. God, we ask you to lead us with your Holy Spirit. All this we pray in the name of Jesus.